0: Good evening. I'm Gareth Irwin, part of the preaching group in Kirkpatrick. And um, that's a group of us who attempt to try and engage with God's Word under Christoph's direction. And you very graciously listen to us and um, critique us and um, sort of put up with us as we, we attempt to do that. There's a feeling as we've read the passage already, it's almost as if we're walking on holy ground. This is a passage that's probably very well known to some of you. At least some of the verses will have been nail- nailed up on trees around Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, we see it as we drive around. And there's a feeling that we really need God's help as we come to this passage. So let's close our eyes and and ask God to come and be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the things that you give us and all the blessings that you give us. And Lord, we thank you that you give us your word. And Lord, your word says that um, it's it's God-breathed. And Lord, we thank you that um, as your word was written down, your Holy Spirit was there to guide and to, to inspire the authors. And Lord, we pray that that Holy Spirit would come now, and in the same way as it breathed all those hundreds of years ago, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and breathe now, so that through our time that we spend here, we would see you face to face, but we would be challenged by your Spirit to live transformed lives. We ask this in your name, amen. I hope you had a good Sunday afternoon, and um, it's great to have you here, and it's, it's lovely to be here. One of the things I want to ask you is, um, have you been hill-walking recently? In the, the olden days, pre-Anna, um, Louise and I would occasionally hill-walk. That's potentially a lie. In the olden days, pre-Louise, I would have occasionally hill-walked. And, um, you know, it's, it's great fun climbing mountains and so on. And the best part I find is whenever you've had a hard slogan you've been you've been climbing for a while and the last mountain I I'm about to say the last mountain I climbed was Ben Nevis but I didn't actually make it to the top because Alistair um my friend and I were we sort of going oh we probably won't have time to make it up to the top but we'll give a, a bit of a run up and see how far we get so we've got about two-thirds of the way up but the thing about climbing Ben Nevis or Sleeve it's the same is there's a bit of a hike through the valley and the forest and so on and you get up there and you don't really get to see much going on it's a bit of a slog and you're getting up there but at a point just above the tree line you take a breath and you turn around and you look back over your shoulder and in the case of Sleeve Donard you see the whole of Dundrum Bay and everything and it's a spectacular view and if you're climbing Ben Nevis um, you get to this point and you see some of the highlands in their glory and it's spectacular And tonight is one of those moments whenever we've had a hard slog through the first few chapters of Romans, but Paul gives us a breather, a moment to pause and look at the view and be inspired and go, wow. This is absolutely amazing, and it's why you've been working hard the last few Sunday nights to get to grips with what Paul's trying to say in Romans, and it's a bit of a confusing style because he keeps repeating the argument and going back to it, and laying it on, laying it on, laying it on thick, so that you get to grips with what's going on, but tonight there's a great view in in sight. The thing is, we need to have a wee bit of a look. It would be helpful if you did have your Bible open in Romans, and the page number is 1131, be great if you had your Bible open, Romans chapter 3. And just to remind you what we learned in chapter 1, the first thing was Paul was introducing himself, um, and he was basically spelling out why the world needs the gospel. And the fact is that we'd gone away from what God had wanted us to be doing, and we were in a situation where God was leaving us as human beings to our own devices after we'd turned our back on the Creator. In chapter 2, basically, again, Paul is laying it out and laying it out and saying that um, we're ultimately going to face God's judgment. The nature is that by us going our own way, we have this situation where we're going to meet God and have to give account of ourselves. Again, the start of chapter 3, the misery continued, in that the Jews had been entrusted with God's word, but they had gone astray and they were still in the need of being judged. They were needing rescued, and there was, no, there was no righteousness. There was no way that anybody could be right before God. And just to give us a bit of an idea, I want to sneak back into the last two verses just before the passage we read tonight and read from Romans 3, verse 19. And if you see there, it says, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. The nature is we're in a situation where humanity is in a situation where it needs to hold itself to account before God. We have to give God an answer. And what does it say in 20? Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So for two and a half chapters, Paul has been building up this picture that the law doesn't work, and all it does is basically points that we're inadequate before God and we need, we need a way out. The exciting thing is, bang, tonight in verse 21, Paul says, But now righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. Isn't that amazing? That's the turning point in Romans, okay? The misery has gone, drawn to an end. This is the point where God acts and God changes how it looks and how human, human history looks from this point onwards. But now, at the very moment when in history it looks as if all else has failed, God is going to act and God deals with sin. Isn't that fantastic for us to know tonight that God is a God who acts at the lowest point in human history? Just as God acted in creation when there was darkness and created light, just as when the children of Israel were stuck in Egypt and needed a rescue plan, God acted. The point is that we worship a God, and we come here tonight to learn from and worship a God who acts in human history. I realize that some of us are sitting in church tonight, and we're in a situation where sometimes our situation in life can be desperate. We're in a situation where we don't see a way out, and we're struggling with some of the things that are going on. Maybe we don't have a job. Maybe our job is a fiasco. Maybe we're struggling with where we're going to live and things like that. The exciting thing about Romans and redemptive history is that God is a God who acts. But now, in the moment of the lowest point, God can come through. And what does he give us? He gives us a righteousness from God, apart from law has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify this passage in Romans is a bit dense. It's like an an ideal sort of chocolate fudge cake. It has to be good and dense and, you know, plenty of like mud. So we need to sort of dig away at it to get the richness that's going to come from it. Okay. So it will be a bit of a challenge and there are some big words, but there's absolute wonderful richness and wonderfully tasting chocolate fudge cake in at the bottom of it. So the point is we've got this big word to deal with righteousness. And basically what that means is to get right with God. As we've been saying in the previous two chapters, the situation was that there was no righteousness with the law. All that this law, all that the Old Testament had testified was that Israel kept on disobeying the things that God wanted them to do. There was no righteousness. Israel couldn't stand right before God, couldn't stand um, without blame before him. But now there's a righteousness from God. And I hope you see the important two-pronged thing about the righteousness is that it is apart from the law and that it's different. It needs to be apart from the law because what what do we know from the previous two chapters? Israel has failed. Israel hasn't been able to keep the law and to keep its relationship with God. But the other thing is that it's actually rooted and implanted firmly in the law and that actually the law and the prophets have been talking about this ever since Genesis chapter 3 And whenever God is saying that one day his people will be restored to the way they were supposed to be, they would be able to walk with him in the cool of the day as they did in the Garden of Eden. The point is that Paul is saying that the righteousness from God is such that it's changed from behaving to believing. And it echoes down through the Old Testament. Verse 22, Paul goes on to give us a bit more about this. He says, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who, believes, who believe. The big thing there, folks, is to look at what, what is going on, is that it's a universality of what Paul is saying here. The righteousness grown from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is as good as what we're putting our trust in, as you sit down in the pews tonight, you put faith in them that they will hold up your weight and they won't collapse under them, depending on how much you eat for Sunday lunch. Some of you may have been more or less concerned about that. The point is, what we kind of faith in is we have to put our trust in it. And it says our faith is only as good as who we put our trust in or what we put our trust in. The nature is that Paul is saying here that this righteousness, this right standing before God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul goes on with his point about the universality of this. He says that there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The nature is that as we look at this, and as we think about the previous two chapters, and we think through the Old Testament, and how God's people attempted to keep this relationship, and attempted to keep that in sync, the point is that they failed, and in the same way, so have we. The nature is, Romans 3.23 is the verse that we see nailed up in the trees as you're driving around particularly precarious bends in Northern Ireland. And it's, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The issue is that as we sit here in Northern Ireland, we've probably heard that verse thousands of times. And the point is that it potentially starts to lose its impact. Can we pause for it? pause for a second? and realize that whether we've heard it for a hundredth or a thousandth time, the point is that sin matters to God, and that's what Paul is trying to reinforce here. The point is that all of us, as we sit here tonight, have sinned, and we do not meet God's standard. I don't know about you, but the scary thing is that in years to come, somebody might decide to write an autobiography, or an autobiography, a biography about us, and this is William Hague's um, sort of William Wilberforce biography. It's a fantastic read. I encourage you to get get a, get a copy and have a, have a flick through it. The issue is, the scary thing is for us, that if somebody was to write a book and write the story of our life, the issue is that there are some things that we're proud about. There's the good stuff. There's the time we worked hard in school and got a good result. There's the time we bought the copy of The Big Issue from The Lady on the Belmont Road and kind of felt good about herself. There's a time that we threw a few tins into the storehouse trolley, and and that's the kind of stuff that we would like other people to see. The nature is, though, that God actually looks at everything we do in our lives, and the the, the autobiography that God would write about us would have absolutely everything in it. And the trouble is that that contains the stuff that we're less proud about, the times that we're grumpy, the times that we're selfish and spoiled, the times that we're impatient, driving behind whoever, And those kind of things in our lives that we're less than proud about. And the issue is that Romans 3.23 points to us and points to the fact that actually our lives, whenever they're sitting in a book like this, God has a look at it and says, actually, that falls short. And we can think we're great and we can think that we do good things. We come to church, we give money, we give blood. We um, do all the stuff that we're supposed to do. um, We collect stuff for Christian aid or whatever. But the actual fact is that God says that no matter what's in this book we fall short of God's standard. And the issue is that when we're saying that we fall short of God's standard, it's as if it's us here and we're trying to have a relationship with God who's up there. And the nature is that that our life, our sin gets in the way of it. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. This matters. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. The point is that God doesn't end there. Paul telling us about God doesn't end there. And I would encourage you, if you ever see Romans three twenty three pinned up on a, a tree somewhere, I want you to go along and do a bit of graffiti and add plus 24, okay? Because I think it does a disservice to what Paul is trying to say and so on if we just stick with the fact that we've all fallen short. Because what Paul goes on to say is, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The point is that Paul doesn't leave us there with this idea that we've fallen short of the glory of God, but brings us on to what are some of the most fantastic verses in the entire scripture. And I said it's dense, but let's get there because Paul gives us three amazing pictures of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. There are some big words and we'll pause and we'll it's it's a bit of hard work but there's good stuff there. And what he says is that we have been justified freely by his grace. Justified is a bit of a, a scary term but actually it's a picture taken from the law courts and it's this idea of a judge actually saying legally are we guilty or not guilty. The thing is it doesn't mean that we're let off the hook. It doesn't mean to treat as not guilty, it doesn't mean declared sort of sort of let off let off or, or not, not guilty. But the idea is that we've actually been put in a place of not just being not guilty, but in a place of being restored to what we once were. And so it is tonight as we sit here and if we're children who of God who have trusted in him as Saviour and Lord, God is standing here and saying that you are not guilty. But more than that, he's saying that actually you're in a place of a covenant relationship with me. The thing is that, that God is saying this, but how is he saying it? How do we, how do we get this? We get it freely by his grace. I was having a wee thought about how really you explain this idea of grace and and how it's free and and how you can't do anything about it. And I was sitting thinking, and the Chilean miners has been a a fantastic thing to watch on TV this week and to to see sort of how everybody's been engrossed as the 33 of them were, were rescued. And just the drama of seeing them every 40 minutes popping out and so on. But the point was that they were sitting down trapped in the mine, unable to do anything to get themselves out. They couldn't clamber up the tunnel because it had been collapsed in. They were stuck there. They absolutely were reliant on somebody coming and doing something to rescue them on their behalf. And the thing was, they were sitting down there. They couldn't even, all they had to do was put on their sunglasses and then sit in the tube and be literally winched up to the top. The thing is, as we're trying to understand this idea of free, freely receiving his grace, that is what God is doing to us this evening. The nature is, as, as people who are coming before an awesome and holy God, there's nothing that we can do except jump into that chute and be winched up to the surface. As, as King David would put it, he's going to take us out of the horrible pit, out of the Mary clay, and put our feet on the rock. That's the idea of freely by grace, is that we have to rely on what Jesus has done to be restored. And folks, I know that as we we sit here tonight in this church that some of us actually need to hear that Jesus and God is saying in our lives that we're not guilty. Some of us maybe have done some things in our lives that we're not proud of, and that we're sitting here and we we can think back. And actually those, those issues, those things, Can harm our relationship with God. The nature is this. Paul gives us this picture of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and says that if we trust in him, God the Father looks at us and says, You are not guilty because of what my son has done. He goes on, though, to say something else about it. He says, We're justified freely by his grace, but through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We've said that justified is an image from the law courts and this idea of being not guilty or guilty. The idea of being redeemed or this redemption idea comes straight from the slave market. And that's something that we in 2010, sitting in Ballyhagamore, have a real struggle with understanding. But the point is that this would have been culturally part of what Israelites and the Jews would have understood. They would have celebrated every year, the Passover, they would have understood that as God's people, they were slaves in Egypt. Um, they would have understood the Passover lamb and the idea that they were redeemed, they were set free. We would have another idea of this as we look and study in the Old Testament, in the book of um, the story of Ruth, and how Boaz was our kinsman redeemer, which is a really funny term, but it's this idea that he was, he was able to buy her back and set her free. Again, Paul is saying to us, that as we sit here and as we try and understand what Jesus does for us on the cross, he sets us free. We are slaves no more. And again, that's something that some of us need to hear as we're in our Christian life and we're having this battle against what Paul in some other books talks about, about the self and this idea of, of trying to live this Christian life in which we, we win. And some of us have to admit that we're slaves to the rat race that we find ourselves in. We're slaves to consumerism. We're slaves to pride. Again, Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is, was to set us free. And again, tonight we can be sitting here and we can claim in Jesus' name that Jesus and what he did has the power to be able to free us from this so that we're no longer guilty and we're no longer enslaved. Paul goes on, and he says that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This is a bit of a, another big word. Atonement is, a, is, is hard work, but what it basically means is the, the satisfaction of anger or wrath, okay? And the point is that this one takes a bit of work, because we need to think back. Again, if you were sitting there and listening to Paul for the first time, you would have known this and understood this a lot more. But this refers back to imagery from the temple and the tabernacle and what happened on the Day of Atonement. What still happens in Israel today is that on the Day of Atonement, there are two goats that are brought into into the community. And what happened in the Old Testament was that one of the goats was sacrificed. So it was killed, and the blood from that goat was taken and then sprinkled, taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, which is all technical stuff. But basically, on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels who were facing out, and between their wings was this space called the mercy seat. And that was the point at which the blood was sprinkled. What happened to the other goat? was that the other goat was prayed over by the priest and all the sins were mentioned and named and sort of represented. The goat was the representation of all that sin. And then that sin was allowed, or that goat, sorry, that goat was allowed to be freed into the wilderness and basically was to wander away from the community and to demonstrate how God was able to take the sins away from his people. The interesting thing from that is that, you know, God... God was able to do that, but it was only a temporary measure. Each year, the the community of Israel has to continue to do that, because actually, as soon as the priest walked out from having sprinkled the blood, the issue was that the community continued to sin, and they had to store up the sins for another year and to allow them to be dealt with by this sacrificial system. The point was that David talks about it as the idea of the goat wandering into the wilderness. As taking our, what he describes is God taking the sins as far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken your sins from us. The point was that David understood that the goat only wandered into the wilderness a certain distance. The goat wasn't able to take away the sins as far as God was able to take away the sins. The point was Isaiah in Isaiah 53 looks forward to a day when something better would happen, when it wouldn't just be this temporary system of sprinkling a bit of blood from a goat and praying and releasing a goat into the wilderness. He says about the future, he says that he will take all our infirmities. The punishment that brought us peace will be upon him. The point is that the animals were only temporary, but they look forward to a time when something better would come. Paul is spelling out to us that we're declared not guilty by the judge. We're we're as a slave, but we're free. He declares also that the price has been paid. The point is that Jesus, in his death on the cross, his blood is that blood that is sacrificed once and for all on the mercy seat of God. It's his blood that actually pays the price that um, the Old Testament system required to ensure that we could have this right relationship with God. It's Jesus who carries the sins of the world further than into the wilderness, but actually as far as the east is from the west. He can actually deal with the problem of sin and make us right with God. Folks, the issue with with often some of the stuff that we do in church is that we, we understand Christianity in terms of Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it is hard work as we deal with that and try and understand those three pictures of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But there's something amazing about getting to grips with the depth and the mystery of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. As I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks, and really trying to chew this over and over and over, All you can do is actually bow down in awe and worship God for what he has done. This idea that through Jesus dying on the cross, we can be declared not guilty, we can be set free, and the price can be paid. Why does Paul say he did this? He goes on in verse um, 25 and 26. He said he did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Again, this is hard work, but we'll, we'll, we'll go slow and hopefully we'll get something from it. The point is that why God did this was because God is just. The very nature, the very character of who God is, is such that God has to demonstrate his righteousness and justice by doing this. The point was that he allowed all the stuff in the Old Testament that we'd been learning about in the first two chapters to keep going. In his patience, in his forbearance, he had left those sins committed unpunished. He did it also to demonstrate his justice at the present time. The point is that the hinge point in redemptive history, as we look at the grand sweep of time from God calling light out of darkness to whenever, Je- whenever Jesus returns as king and this world draws to an end. The turning point in human history was at the cross. And the point is that God in the Old Testament was looking forward to a day when Jesus would die on the cross. And now he's able to demonstrate his justice at this present time, so that as to be just, so that God's character could be upheld, And he also, the point is that he needed to fulfill the Old Testament law. It's hard work, but I hope you get it. In verse 26, he's saying this, that he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So the point was to to meet the requirements of the Old Testament, something had to be done. And so as to be just, the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So actually God To be just is the person who provides a way for those who have had this relationship with him broken to be restored. John Stott puts it, no clearer, but slightly more memorable, by saying God himself has given himself to save us from himself. The point is that he righteously makes the unrighteous righteous. The only way that the Old Testament system the Old Testament system has to stand for the law and the prophets to, to be fulfilled. And the point is as well that the only way that that could be fulfilled is by a perfect sacrifice, that is Jesus. But the only person who could give us that perfect, perfect sacrifice is God himself. So in order for this to work, God, whilst being the judge, has to be the person who provides this mechanism for salvation. It's hard work but the issue is I have a the guy Alistair I was chatting about has a had a dog called Jasper and Jasper is no more Um, but Jasper used to run around his uh, house and so on and the issue was that there's a part in his um, his sort of buildings outbuildings or whatever where there's this narrow passageway and the trouble is it's really only the width for a dog to walk along. So Jasper not being the brightest animal Would occasionally wander down there but the trouble was he couldn't turn to get out or back he couldn't escape and not being the brightest he couldn't really back out either so there was this problem that you had a dog who was then stuck between these two buildings so occasionally Alistair would be um, stuck in his his house and would be hearing a lot of barking and a lot of yelping and a lot of howling because Jasper had got stuck in this um, in this sort of alleyway and the thing was that Jasper couldn't get out so Alistair had to go down, literally lift Jasper out and back out um, so, that, so that he could be free. The point is that as we come to a situation with us being right before God, there's nothing. We're like Jasper. We're the, we're the stupid animal <laughs> that is stuck there and unable to get out, unable to turn around. And it's us relying on God to be able to make us right before him. The trouble with with Romans, as we've discovered in our journey through it so far, is that we, we often come to it post the Reformation. We know that this is the text that Martin Luther read and then nailed his um, document on the wall and, and, um, that started the Reformation. And the nature is that we miss the point that actually Paul was writing this not as a textbook for the Reformation that we could read, um, you know, 2,000 years later and have a good theoretical discussion about it. The point was that Paul was writing this as a document just to a community just like us, a community of people who were trying to live as God's disciples and actually live as a community that could make a difference in the world. And I suppose the point of this is to actually, what was Paul trying to say? Paul wasn't trying to to argue about the Reformation, but, but Paul was trying to get a Christian community that could better um, represent Jesus Christ, and the thing is that his priority in this is the unity of the community. There were issues between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians um, trying to live together in this community, and the point is that Paul goes on to say and really get to grips with, with how this changes our lives in verse twenty seven he says, Where then is boasting? it is excluded on what principle on that of observing the law, no but on that of faith." The point is that boasting is finished. We, we can no longer rely on our the fact that we've been to Sunday school for years, the fact that we've been card-carrying Presbyterians for years, the fact that we've got fantastic biblical knowledge, the fact that our dad was a Presbyterian minister. All these kind of things actually fall by the wayside. Boasting is finished. Because the point is that we go back to the universality of what Paul is saying here. And it goes back to the fact that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but also actually all of us can have this relationship with Jesus Christ through the three images of what he has done on the cross. The point is, how are we going to be different by what we've heard this evening? What we should be is transformed. The fact is that if we're saying, if we meditate on the fact of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we're going to be entirely different. The point is that if we understand grace in any way, we'll realize that we can't do anything um, to fix our relationship with God. The point is that none of us can come in here smugly with what we've done today or what we've done in the week before. The fact is that all of us need to rely on God's work on the cross through Jesus. The thing is that we'll, if we think about it at all, we'll be overwhelmed by thankfulness and humbled by the fact that God has acted there's something unbelievably infectious about the message of grace that this whole passage is about. We are free, but we've been bought by a price. The fact is that this is a message that the world needs to hear, that Jesus is the solution to the world's problem, that we we can't be right before God apart from the righteousness that God has revealed through Jesus. The issue is as well that we should cling to the cross and, and take this message to the world, if we think back to our book, the point is we were saying that actually this book contains all the stuff that we we don't want to deal with and all the stuff that we wouldn't want to tell the person sitting beside us in the pew. And the point is that this is the book that sits between us and God and causes us, us not to have that relationship with Him. The thing is that the message of Romans 3 and the message of what Paul is telling us in that passage is that actually this book is taken away, and all the sins that are recorded in this don't matter anymore, In that Jesus takes them on to him. He takes the punishment, and actually the relationship between him and God is is broken for the period on the cross. But what it means is that we have this relationship, this way is clear for us to be in a right relationship with God, to have that righteousness restored. Paul continues, he says that boasting is where is it? It's gone. We, we can't boast anymore because actually we're all in the same boat. Um, he goes on to say, for we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. The only thing that we can bring to this equation is that we can trust in Jesus. He says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. It returns to the theme of the universality that we have been looking at earlier on. The point is that as a community of God's people, as we think about being a gospel-centered church, we look outside and we see people who are under the same condemnation. Yes, but we see people who can have this wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ and God restored. The point is that this is that this is the message that we need to take to the big issue seller on the Belmont Road, the mother at the school gate, or the people that we're working with this week. What about, he goes on to say, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. It goes back to the very start. The point is that this is what God was on about all along through the Old Testament. Right from Genesis 3, he was saying that there was going to be a system That would sort this whole problem out. What about us? Paul suggests a transformed community, one in which people realize sin matters and have to trust in Jesus and rely on God's grace. A community where people are declared not guilty, where they can be free from things that trap them, and a community that celebrates Jesus' death on the cross as the price being paid for us. That's a community that would be attractive to the world, It's a community that would draw people to join it. It's a community that can see people following Jesus. A community that could transform the world. That is, after all, a gospel-centered church. And that's the gospel that we as a gospel-centered church need to be taking to the community around us. May God grant us the transformed lives that actually make us transform the community around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we come to your word and we're challenged by just how much meat is in a few verses. And Lord, just as um, we we just need your Holy Spirit to come and help us to unpack some of the mystery and the magnitude of what we've attempted to understand. Heavenly Father, you give us the pictures of being declared not guilty, of being set free like a slave, and of The picture of your blood of your son being the thing that makes us right with God and restores our relationship with you and heavenly father we we realize that actually there's nothing we can bring to this this debate there's nothing that we can do other than trust in you and receive this gift by your grace heavenly father i pray that just some of that mystery um, would just roll around in our heads and would actually just impact what we're thinking and what we're doing in the week ahead. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us that actually if we were to to understand this fully, we wouldn't boast anymore. We wouldn't come into church thinking that we were any better, because we would understand that we have to rely on what you have given to us freely. Heavenly Father, we realize as well that actually if we were a community who understood what you'd done for us on the cross, we would be an attractive community, and that we would draw people to you. So Heavenly Father, I pray that um, you would just help help these concepts work in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, we pray that our lives would be transformed as a consequence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.